0: Have you ever had an Indian American female friend face three arrests, eight felonies, interrupt Bernie Sanders and Jeff Bezos on stage in protest, all in the fight for animal liberation? I will admit, I am definitely not first in line to raise my hand. Well, until after I talked to my guest today, Priya Sani. Priya Sani, guys, is one of the most badass of badass women that I've had the privilege to talk to, and I hope you really enjoy our conversation. She, for context, is the f- one of the four elected leaders of the San Francisco Bay Area chapter of DXC. This stands for Direct Action Everywhere. This is an international organization that advocates for animal rights, and they often break into farms and slaughterhouses to take animals that they think are being raised in crowded or inhumane or unsafe conditions. They also use civil disobedience and courts to fight for the rights of captive creatures intended for human consumption. In our conversation, we cover a lot. Um, We cover corporate grade speciesism, body myths, and terrorism against our bodies. We talk about beauty privilege, even some Bollywood. Uh, We talk about what it's like to grow up with a sense of sensitivity, rebelliousness, compassion for others. And honestly, trusting our inner voices and pushing ourselves to be able to speak louder and louder against the things that we feel most passionate about in order to protect others. Ultimately, we answer the question, what does the animal liberation movement and the human rights movement have in common? Spoiler alert, it is a shit ton. So let's get to it and talk to Priya. Hi Priya, welcome to Down to Brown. First of all, wow, Uh, your story I find so fascinating. After talking to you in our intro meet and greet, I had such a like she crush on you. You are truly fascinating. Um, and I'm so happy to be talking to you. So for, thank you for joining.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I feel equally honored and excited. You have such wonderful energy and I'm so happy that we connected and really, really excited to be on this podcast. Oh, shucks,
0: um, so my first question for you actually is honestly, like and we'll go into what you do um more, but how did you get to where you are
1: now today? Yeah, how did I get to where I am today? and I guess uh just for context, where I am today is I am an i I like to call myself uh an animal liberationist, and uh more than that someone who I think is uh trying to change the world and um, you know, I, I like to see myself as a change maker and I got into this work, um, I think because I, I feel, you know, I feel like I'm a really sensitive person and growing up in, mm-hmm. in India, I saw a lot of, um, a lot of awful things happening. Um, my, thankfully, my family was, you know, a upper middle class family, and I feel very privileged to have lived the life that I live, but I also f- witnessed a lot of suffering whether it was uh, animals being uh, you know hit in the streets or abused or or poor people and uh, poverty just you know spreading um, in the in the city that I was living in, I think it really sensitized me to see that there's people in this world who are far more vulnerable than I am and they don't have any help. The helplessness really stuck out to me, and I always saw myself as somebody who needed to fill in that gap. And I feel like from then till now, not much has changed. I still see myself as somebody who has to fill in that gap and do whatever I can to right the wrongs of our current society.
0: Yeah. And what you said really stood out about the piece of like your sensitivity playing a part in helping you be able to sympathize and empathize in order to do uh, the work that you do today. Um, How was that received in your household that type of sensitivity and I ask because usually in India like I've noticed too even in visits for example I went with a friend who's American and grew up here Caucasian and then her reaction for example when we were at the traffic stop and there are uh, folks who come to beg right at your window that's something that I got kind of used to as part of like life in India Um, and the way she reacted I was like this is interesting to see it from someone from her first perspective right to see it through her eyes for the first time. and it just occurred to me how much we kind of de- we become desensitized and normalize some of the phenomena you see in India. You'll see a rich hotel next to a slum and that's so normal, right? And so I'm curious like how was that sensitivity received by your family? How did you feel like you went into that direction versus the opposite?
1: I think that sensitivity was almost cultivated by my family because both my parents are very (laughs) sensitive people. And I just Mm -hmm. remember growing up, um, my mom in particular, I still have a vision of, um, you know, poor people coming to our door and her making with utmost love uh, chai for, uh, you know, for for any poor person who came and knocked on our door uh, with roti and uh giving them food as if she was making it for us wow and i just remember that so vivid you know that that memory is so so vividly and i remember <clears throat> learning that you know people who are less you know who are who are more vulnerable than you and who are in more need of, than you are and they're knocking on your door asking for food they must be really really you know in need of help and we help them and mm-hmm. beyond helping them, um, I think there was this idea that these people are a form of God and God is coming to our door. And um I just remembered that and uh I, I think that really cultivated uh the sensitivity inside of me and not just with humans but also animals. My mom would, you know, routinely go and uh give food to houseless animals. I've remembered this one incident in my um family, which was so it stuck out to me. So it has uh, you know stuck out to me over the years. So pow- it's so powerful that um I'll never forget. Which is we had a nest of birds outside our house in India in, in our backyard, and we were trying to protect these birds from you know the elements, so the air, water, uh wind, and uh, every day we would all as a family go and make sure that their nest is okay. And I think just, wow, just that one story of of just, you know, coming together as a family to make sure that this, their nest is okay, just showed us that non-human animals are people that we care about are, uh, you know, they're part of our larger family. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, although it was not something that was, you know, really verbalizing in our family it's just the actions that my parents took and even, even just the, the things that they felt I could just feel like my mom and my dad feeling you know the pain of others and it helped cultivate in me the sensitivity as well and I, I feel really grateful to that although living with that sensitivity can be a very <laughs> it can be very um difficult at times and challenging because um, at, like you said, there's so much to get, you know, there's so much you have to go through in life. And I remember after I moved my, um, you know, after we immigrated um, to the United States, I went back to India um, in 2015. Uh, we moved here in t- uh, 2001. And I was so disturbed the whole time. I was depressed and I was disturbed. Mm-hmm. And I found it to be even more disturbing, that people would be getting used to um, the poverty and the the pollution and, you know, animals on the streets um, without protection. I, I just remember that feeling. I felt so strange. I looked around me and I was like, no, this is so, it feels so unreal to me. And I, again, remember this one very vivid mm-hmm. moment where I was inside my, um, my parents' house in India. We were eating food. And I remember looking out the door. Um, there was a window in our door. And I was looking at these poor kids. Their mothers were uh, cleaning houses. And, you know, th- that's not like the same it is here, that the labor of, of people who are cleaning houses over there. I mean, it's very different. Yeah. And th- these kids were just waiting in the park that are about two to three years old. And they're playing with trash they're playing with garbage and even thinking about that now brings tears to my eyes because it just makes me feel you know just makes it just reminds you that you know they're so vulnerable they could have gotten kidnapped they could have gotten hurt um and and they're you know just waiting outside for their their moms and i just remember seeing their faces and they were so happy playing with this garbage um, yeah. and I had all these, uh, old toys in our house and I just went and, you know, gave it to them because I just felt so, um, I just felt so just deeply disturbed. And I, I, it, and it occurred to me that, you know, this happens here every single day, but and no fault of individuals on their own. It's just something that we are taught that society reinforces so much that we have to get used to that. We, we, we eventually do get used to it mm-hmm. absolutely, and, <clears throat> and it's hard not to. Um, but I think for me, um, since I, I'm not sure what was different about me, but I think I, I, I think it was the rebellious sort of spirit where, you know, my parents would be like, well, we're going to go shopping. And I was like, well, I'm not going to go shopping because I feel, I feel really sad that you we're going shopping when there's these kids playing with garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're going to go do this. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: At how early of an age did you find yourself having that voice speak up for you?
1: Well, I remember when I was eight years old, that's the first, I mean, my family's from Punjab, India, and um, we are Sikh. We're supposed to be vegetarian, but my family isn't vegetarian. So I just remember um, when I was eight years old, I really wanted to cut my hair. And my parents told me that I couldn't cut my hair because, you know, it's sentient and um, Sikhs aren't supposed to cut their hair. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense to me, but why are we eating animals? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, yeah, we're not supposed to eat animals. And I was like, okay, so why don't I cut my hair and stop eating animals? So I think I was around eight years old when I first became vegetarian. It didn't last very long at that time because, you know, societal forces it and- yeah. are stronger. <clears throat> than a, than a child's, uh, you know, but, but yeah, I definitely started having those feelings then. And I knew that I was wrong to, you know, I just knew that like, it's not okay for me to eat sentient beings. It just didn't make sense to me. And even though my family ate animals, the good thing about Sikh culture and Indian culture in general, as opposed to here, is that even when people are eating animals, they know that like, they look up to people who are not, they're like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right for doing your daughter is right for what she's saying. I just remember all my dad's friends, everybody in our life was like, yeah, she's right. Like, I just remember hearing that. But then I was like, really confused. Cause then people were like, well, you should eat, you know, you should eat uh this chicken curry or something. And I was just very confused because they were celebrating the fact that I'm, yeah. I'm becoming a vegetarian, but at the same time they were, uh, you know, their actions weren't matching up to their words, which, you know, uh, in a way, was preparing me for society because we live in a world full of contradictions.
0: Absolutely. Like they're probably giving you that feedback while like chomping on their chicken nuggets themselves, right? So the ideal is probably something that we admire, but it's, it's really hard to do. So that's why I'm incredibly impressed. You know, as kids, I think we also tend to have a gut feeling. Like we talk about how as kids, we're not taught body shame, right? Like we naturally feel very body positive, but we're sort of taught and we learn from society. And so similarly, like that gut voice of yours, I think is so interesting to hear and powerful. Um, but over time it's just, we're told like, that's the way things work. Um, and especially like, it sounds like I understood your kind of natural calling towards this, um, so early on. And so, but I'm curious, like how it's not common for, you know, boys or girls in our community to do this type of work, to dedicate their lives and their nine to five to animal liberation. Um, and I don't mean that in a way that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a good, I think it's amazing what you're doing, but you know how our society works. They kind of like, whenever you say, I would say like, Oh, I want to do like diversity talks or like interior decorating. And my dad would be like, that's a great hobby, but like, let's make sure you get like a full-time job too. Um, so how did your family and relatives respond to this? And how did you find yourself being able to pursue this full time and free yourself of that? expectation and pressure that sometimes the indian community can place on us
1: yeah that's a really good question and i think (laughs) i think because of uh my rebellious uh, nature or i I guess growing up uh, now that i look back on it i was kind of preparing myself for uh i guess career in 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 activism or or something because i uh just never did well in school um i I think I was overwhelmed emotionally, I felt very anxious. I felt very left out and excluded, and I think over the course of time, I just felt like where I am in life is not like going through this education system, going through the schooling system. I just felt that it's not for me, and I always felt a greater purpose, and I always knew that there is a greater greater purpose that I have to, you know, adhere to. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, you know, going through life and just, <laughs> I was, I mean, I, I was a very sort of nonchalant, like, do what I want. Don't tell me what to do. Um, kind of a child. Um, and I didn't, I just, I just didn't do well in school. Like I i could not sit down. I, mean, I think I, I had pretty bad severe ADHD too, but I couldn't sit down and concentrate. I was feeling very anxious and I just had always this like, restless feeling like I'm not supposed to be here. And I, I still can't mm. figure I, I still have that feeling. It's a very strange thing. But I still have that feeling where I always feel like I'm supposed to be somewhere else and doing something else. So I think this sort of uh, like restlessness always kept me and still is keeping me very open, because I, I feel I feel open um when I feel compelled to take action. And I feel like, that sort of uh, openness helped me realize that this is, you know, <clears throat> that it's not my path to conform um, and become an engineer or a doctor. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. It just never resonated with me. Um, finally, yeah. finally, what did resonate with me was, uh, was uh, meeting like-minded people. And uh, I, I remember going on Facebook and just seeing a lot of posts about animal suffering. And I just remember feeling like, going into deep depression because of it Yeah, you know I just could not stop looking at it I couldn't stop thinking about it and I mean I have a very obsessive personality so you know once I think about something it's kind of like all I can think about and then like that's just become it it just becomes a part of my world it becomes a part of my life like I I just that's just how I operate so that's just all I was doing and I I remember at the time I wasn't leaving my house and I I don't even know if my sister would remember this but I really appreciate this um this incident. But I just remember her being like, Oh, my God, you're always on Facebook, like looking at what's happening to animals and crying about it. Like, why don't you do something about it? And I was like, (laughs) you know what, you're right. Yeah, (laughs) I should do something about it. (laughs) And I just remember being like, damn, thank you. Because she was right. She was like, why are you showing me all this stuff? Like, you should go and take some action. And not feel so depressed, because it feels like, you know, I, I was just crying all the time. And I felt like, I couldn't stop thinking about it and I just felt Mm -hmm. like the only remedy for all of this is to take action and I just followed my heart and you know met like-minded people finally came across people and we were you know we talked about um doing the work that we're doing now with DXC and then before you know it building uh sorry and I should say with direct action everywhere because we didn't I, I didn't mention that but that's the global grassroots network that I'm uh um honored to be a part of. I helped co-found in uh, six years ago. And, um, you know, we grew from a group of four to five people to um, a grassroots network all over the globe and a prominent group here in Berkeley doing investigatory work, going inside of farms, slaughterhouses, rescuing animals, exposing criminal animal abuse, and uh, challenging corporate power. And, um, just to answer your question, I think it, this is still a struggle in my family where it's like, why aren't you like, what's going on? What's the career thing? Yeah. But, and I mean, it had bothered me for years where I just felt like, well, am I secure? Like, what is my life about? What am I doing? But I think every day just becomes clear, honestly, especially with the global pandemic that I am on the right path. We are in a catastrophic situation environmentally, considering yeah. you know the degradation of our planet. We are in a global pandemic no, uh, because of uh, animal agriculture, you know, this is a disease which came out of animal agriculture just because it happened to other animals in a different country doesn't mean it can't happen here. In fact, it's there's we've seen evidence inside of pig farms here um, which could possibly be even more catastrophic than the pandemic that we're experiencing. We could have a, a you know, an anti—we're uh, headed towards an antibiotic resistance um, disease at some point uh, coming out of these these pig farms because they're being constantly fed these antibiotics. But anyway, and we're also in a situation uh, where um, you know climate change and uh, and uh, poverty. While these corporations are profiting off of the pandemic, Amazon has made forty-eight billion dollars off yeah. of the global pandemic. So all that to say, it just makes me feel like I can't look to the standards of our current society to measure the work that I'm doing, because it's never going to live up to what I call the American, you know, dream or fantasy um, world, which, you know, we, we weren't given a choice to uh, in, invest in or like, I, I we didn't consent to it. We were just said like hey here's how things are
0: yeah this is what you should aspire to but I think the thing about the American dream if I had to say like okay like the ideal version that I would hope that it is aspirationally is that piece of you should be able to pursue what you want in this country, right, technically. Um, And I feel like you need every type of person. So even when our families are like doctor, engineer, lawyer, like if you don't have someone who's doing the work that you're doing, if you also don't have someone who's a doctor, the society would crumble too. So I feel like it's so important that we have folks like you and like the amount of the amount of um, community that you've built around this. And certainly like, I will just attest, like you helped educate me when I talked to you for the first time. There were so many things I didn't really challenge because we tend to not take that extra step sometimes to challenge things, right? Beyond, um, for example, like we know, what some of the political censorship um, issues are happening right now, but we don't know how that is connected to the environment. I mean, we don't know how that's connected to um, other very serious implications. It's all tied together. And I feel like that was something that I was, I remember like leaving our conversation, feeling very insightful about that. And you had me thinking in a different direction than I did before, Um What I really admire about you is you kind of have this trifecta, which I kind of wrote down as we were talking. And (laughs) um, this is me being so like three Ps, but like passion, you have the passion, you have the people that you met, and then you had the right person push you. Wow. Um, And I feel like that's such an incredible like mix and coupled with the fact that like your sensitivity and like rebellion is um, you turn that into your superpower, which I, I really admire. Um, and so you use a lot of this, like when I hear your story is like going into the farms and exposing what's happening. Um, I can't imagine like that takes a lot of courage. So can you tell me and others who might not know what is this that, um, you do and as part of your organization?
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for everything that you said, by the way, I, I, you're, you're, you know, that that was very nice and very thoughtful to think about the three P's. I never thought about that, but I'll write it Oh, down well, <laughs> yeah.
0: you're all, oh yeah. And then you've got Priya. So yeah. there you go.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I really like to think of courage as a thing that, um, well, I mean, even if you look at the definition of courage, it's doing things that scare you. And it's it's really interesting to me because going inside of farms and exposing animal abuse is not something that I felt ever scared me because I, Um, I have a drive for for truth, and since I regard it as, you know, the highest of my values, it didn't matter to me what got in the way, whether it was me getting arrested, whether it was um, uh, seeing things that are going to be really, really disturbing, because I felt that I had to, I have to, not had to, I have to um, do it for, for the truth, because the truth is, you know, if we don't have the truth, what are we fighting for? However, having said that, I think um, going inside of farms and slaughterhouses has at at the same time been a very, very compelling um, experience. It it has been difficult um, and challenging at times. Really not that challenging because our our, uh, team, um, our organization, Direct Action Everywhere, we spent years preparing manuals training each other learning about farms um even before we go inside of farms really preparing ourselves mentally and emotionally to you know go inside of these places so we since since it was very methodical i didn't feel the space to you know have uh, have too much anxiety because everything was so planned out and everything was so um yeah everything was you know yeah i guess so methodical but at the same time it is a very very daunting experience it's not every day that you're like well i'm going to go inside of a certified humane whole foods facility to show how this company is exposing you know lying to the public and is fraudulent and and um in its marketing practices and um i don't know what to expect and that's the first farm that i went inside and it was very shocking It's like I was trying to imagine what a farm would look like before I went in because that was my first time six years ago. And I really when when I walked in, it was it was just it was just this feeling of like, no, they can't be lying to us like this. Like, this is it. Mm. You know, because it's like even in my wildest imagination, this is not what I imagined. And it was worse than what I had imagined. There's birds crying. Um, We are walking inside of this barn where I can't even step foot on the ground because there's birds everywhere and they're calling this a uh, certified humane facility because these birds get to roam around for free, yet they're breath- breathing toxic air. They're sitting in each other's feces and they are trapped in cages of flesh instead of cages of wire. What is the difference? Mm. It just felt so uh, unreal. It felt very shocking to me that, um, I can't believe this is happening. Like they're lying to us like, this is wow, this is really bad, you know? And, <clears throat> And I mean, as an investigator, I have seen, um, I actually wrote a poem about it. I I like to write poems and I just, just this one line. I I remember feeling like I've seen and and had so many animals die in my arms that I feel like my eyes have become a Mm. a graveyard. You know, it feels like I've seen, I've seen all this suffering and my eyes feel like a graveyard. And I think that's the best way to capture it is because it's because there's so much central to, to. Factory farming and animal exploitation is death and disease and suffering. And you know, when you've seen so much of yeah. it, it's really hard to even put it into words. You you think like you can capture it and and feel like okay, I'm going to like somehow convey this, but there's really no words to capture this feeling. I remember this one incident where I went inside of uh, a farm. It was in Iowa, and my 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 friend Matt and I were just conducting an investigation. We weren't prepared to rescue anybody because you know, two people trying to rescue a 300 pound pig um, during a snowstorm. We had to cross, uh, it, it, literally it was raining and I think it was about to snow. I mean, I, I was just so muddy and the wind had torn my, cl- my clothing and mm. um, we had to cro- cross over this field to get to this farm. And by the time we got, to, got inside this farm, the first thing that we see is this pig who's convulsing to death she's literally having death throws while we walked in and I uh I mean I think there's a video clip of me where I'm just crying to my friend and saying oh my god no I, I just I was speechless and you know yeah. when you see that kind of suffering on that level where you have somebody when you're just they're convulsing to death they're they're having the, the, the death throes. what what can you do I mean, Mm -hmm. I just remember sitting there and and just hoping that I could be there for this pig and and let her know that her her life mattered and that I was there to witness that suffering and to do something with it and to make a promise to her that this will not, you know, her life will meant something. And Mm -hmm. and she's just one of thousands. So I remember looking down and looking up and being like, oh, my God, everyone is her and there and then seeing broken body parts literally seeing like legs and um pig legs and 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 um i think we even saw uh other yeah other body parts and it just feels like a horror house and then it Mm -hmm. feels like i don't have time to even process all of the feelings that i'm feeling let alone the fear of getting caught and at that point you kind of have to choose like well here I am you know i'm I'm inside this farm, and I hope that I don't get caught, but here i am and um yeah it's a very uh ground in a way it's a very grounding feeling because you're you're witnessing what very few people on this planet are yeah. able to witness so you you feel almost like the eyes that you're you know like my eyes are not my own anymore they're eyes that are going to be that are witnessing so they can go and, and, and inform others about what's happening inside
0: absolutely and I thank you for sharing that like you gave me chills like i really like i felt like through the story could go there with you and at least watch and um through your eyes and i I just feel so humbled by that story because it's it's really interesting how we justify um with animals that they we've sort of and again, I think you and I mentioned like humans are animals too, but we've created this sort of invisible hierarchy of who deserves that type of, um, who deserves to be treated a certain way and who doesn't. So when you talked about the pig, I mean, like it's it's a pig, but even if you saw a human suffering that way, why would that be more painful to watch than seeing a pig in that pain, right? It's all the same. It's all the same. Um, we all matter. And so I think that type of universal compassion that you can demonstrate in that story i think it can really resonate with us especially like as i think about like sometimes for example in um you hear a lot about like dogs in um asia being eaten and people feeling really up in arms about that in the us and sometimes i've wondered like um they kind of t- like it's kind of talked about as if like oh such a barbaric ritual and uh, uh, of course like let me be really clear i do not want mm-hmm. to like consume dogs at all um and but I wonder, it seems like the US has justified, or like this culture has justified dogs are bad, but it's totally fine when it comes to like chickens or cows. So who's to say, right? Like if that's culturally relevant for, you know, like Chinese culture or Korean culture, that's, they're not... I don't see it as barbaric. It's probably there's a cultural context there. So again, I'm not saying like I'm an advocate for eating anything like that um, and justifying, but I'm saying it's kind of what you make up in like humans make up these rules of like what's allowed and what's not. And actually you could go a step further and say, that is a made up rule. We can actually even say like, we don't need to eat animals. Like there are other ways that we can get this right. Like um, protein or without treating them this way, at least.
1: Yeah. So I actually live at home with my, one of my two dogs who was rescued from a dog meat farm in China by our team. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I didn't go to China to rescue him and the two other dogs, but I I know because my, my co-organizers and co-investigators went to to a Chinese went to Yulin where the dog meat festival happened and um, rescued these dogs and did an, an investigation inside of these dog meat farms and one of the most interesting things that they mentioned is that these dog meat farms first of all are far better than the pig farms here in the United States because at least they have their own pens they're not factory farms like these dogs are not in you know factory farm conditions it's horrible that they're going to get beaten to death and it literally gives me nightmares every single night thinking yeah not every single night but you know a lot because I live at home with one of these dogs to think about how he was going to be beaten to death and there's nothing you know there's no comparison there but I but on on, but it just makes you think wow if we're what are we doing wrong that like these pigs are confined in these gestation crates and they are equally as sentient as these as these dogs right so Mm-hmm. Um who is to the, the west it just we we think we can make these moral decisions of uh you know which animals are are uh, suitable to exploit and which aren't. Exactly. And, and it's really disturbing because the reality is that there's no animals that are that we should not be exploiting animals and uh we can move away from move away from that but the fact that there's a this sort of hierarchy and this sort of uh you know We'll tell you which animals are okay to eat and which animals are not okay to eat is a very, um, you know, it's an act of white supremacy. It's an act of uh, it's an act of uh, supremacy in general. And um, if you look back, if you look at China and how you know Chinese people have been eating tofu and other, uh, let's see, vegan proteins of protein, or, like vegan yeah. protein for thousands of years, and um, they actually you know, in, in their culture are, are, are much more compassionate and kinder to animals. But they've been given this barbaric image by the West because we like to compare ourselves to um, China to make ourselves feel better about the, you know, about the horrible things that we're doing to animals here inside of factory farms. And let me tell you, these are horrible things that are happening to animals inside of factory farms
0: yeah and you know one of the questions that i would love to ask you too is like for our listeners too who uh, might consume meat so can you help us understand like it would you rec- like is the recommendation in order to be able to join and be an ally of this fight or participant is it to stop eating meat or is there a way that people can vote support but be more socially responsible carnivores
1: yeah, that's a really, really good question, and I think the the first way that I'm going to answer that is, you know, to me, the most effective thing anybody can do is take action, um, take action towards, uh, you know, towards ending these systemic atrocities. So while my, you know, our goal is to create systemic change by, on a, you know, po- on a policy level, on a massive level, challenging the system of animal agriculture, abolishing the system of animal agriculture, abolishing factory farming. Um, I think that's the most important thing. And you can do that, you know, just being honest, you can do that without being a, without being vegan. And honestly, I have I have a lot of respect for people who are, you know, are are, are doing are doing their best. Yeah. However, I think if we are in a place of privilege, if we are able to uh embody and live our values, uh, and when I say privilege, you know, there are people that are that live in impoverished communities, there are people who are in a position where they uh i have to go to liquor stores to get their food there are people there, you know poor people who can't afford to um, make decisions about what they get to eat or not and and so you know um that that's very different but if we're in a place of privilege and honestly everybody should have the privilege to eat healthy you know plant-based foods but unfortunately we don't we all should do our best in body values and not eat animals because even on an individual level, even if that's not making a difference on a system, creating systemic change. Um, I like to do whatever I can to embody, you know, the values that I, that I hold close to my heart. And I think that if we're consuming animals that have been tortured and uh, are uh, being raised, you know, in, in disease stricken um, farms, and um, not only that, but uh, the slaughterhouse workers are being subjected to violence um, are being forced to kill kill animals for living communities of uh, marginalized communities are, are uh, sprayed with diseases. um, Sorry, sprayed with feces because these factory farms are, you know, absolutely toxic Um, release toxins uh, like cesspools, which is basically a pool of, you know, shit and blood. I mean, just to be honest, that's what it is. Yeah. And, Uh, destroying the environment, then we should do that. Because I think putting all of that into your body, there's no way we can be peaceful when we are literally putting all of the suffering and violence inside of our bodies and minds.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, actually going back to the piece about the rebellion, I mean, you've taken a lot of really direct action as you've mentioned, um, but even so far as being, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you've been arrested three times and you're facing eight felonies?
1: Yes, I'm facing eight felony charges. I have been arrested three times so far. Um, uh, and the felonies that I'm facing are for exposing criminal animal abuse at the largest organic poultry producer in the nation. It's called Petaluma Poultry. And uh, it's actually not too far from here. And uh, the reason yeah. that they're charging us is because they want to you know, they want to stop whistleblowers like me, factory farm whistleblowers from doing the work that we're doing, and to intimidate us into inaction. Um, And mm-hmm. they want to you know, restore their corporate power, corporate greed, and they don't want anyone coming and threatening their pillars of uh power and their veil that, that is uh, yeah. allowing the public to believe uh, the humane lies that they put out there. Absolutely. You know, it's,
0: not only absolutely, but I feel like the fact that you're still like, well, fuck that and I'm going to keep going, I'm incredibly in, in awe and especially like, you know, a couple of things when I was doing research before we talked uh, for the first time was how you even went up on stage to interrupt Bezos um, to protest the um, practices with Whole Foods and even Bernie Sanders and the dairy industry. Um, and you even said, like, I admire I love Bernie. However, like this is something that I like feel the issue itself is something we could change Um that really, first of all, amazed me in general as anyone like watching. us, like, wow, that's incredible. Like that ticks cajones, Like it like really does make that statement. And also at the same time, like I couldn't help, but, you know, being able to connect with you as an Indian American woman that to feel that like, wow, how did, and I hope this may like, you know, comes across the right way, but like, how did she pull that off? Because Growing up, we typically are taught, like, not to, you know, speak up against things. We're taught especially against um, people with penises. So how did you find yourself finding that and, like, breaking that stigma that might have held you back and continue to push and push and fight for this, even when these, you know, things are coming up or, like, the slap on the wrist?
1: Yeah, that's a really good – I guess (laughs) I – i'm not i really you know i i ask myself this question a lot because i look at my family and it's a very it's not like a subtle like oh yeah she's she kind of sticks out it's like very obvious like (laughs) that is the that okay that's her she is the one yep that's the one who is you look like literally you know people have said that to me like wow you're so different than most indian women i've ever met you're so different than you know um x, Y, and Z. I kind of feel sad when I hear that, because to me, what I hear yeah. is like we 've all just been colonized let 's be honest, we are all so Absolutely. colonized i mean we, we we come from a country of people that it, that has been colonized, and sadly, we don 't know our history and um until recently, too, like i don 't think I spent as much time learning about the history of, of India, and I just started taking a little bit of a dive into it, but we come from a people that 's been colonized, and then we come to a country that has colonized for 400 years and um and then we're trying to you know fit into this um american dr- you know this american dream so i guess i guess for me what happened was i was growing up in india and i already started to feel like i don't fit in because of all of these uh sort of um you know i just i, I wasn't very good at school i was very rebellious in nature i was very sensitive um and uh just um that seemed to be my driving force i had i have a very strong like moral sort of uh i guess how do you call it like yeah it's sort of like moral code where i feel very compelled to do something in situations where people are are uh like less vulnerable people are being targeted mm-hmm. and I, I i remember this from a young age when you know um like I, I refused to go to my dad's friend's house because of the way that he treated his maids I was like your friend's an asshole. I'm pretty sure I'm, I said this to <laughs> I'm pretty sure I said this to my dad's friend I was like I don't like the way you treat your maid I'm not gonna come come over and my and I think my dad would like tell tell his friend like don't don't do that like my daughter's right or something like that you know and <laughs> and um and yeah I guess also just um I, I think I kind of got lucky I, I really don't think that I'm you know extraordinary I think my circumstances I got lucky that I wasn't in that when we moved to the United States I wasn't um, in a community of other people where I fit in so in a way it kind of helped me because I wasn't around all these Indian you know this Indian community where there was like this uh this bar I had to like these standards I had to I had to reach I just felt Mm -hmm. like that's not me because at this point I was just experiencing life in a very, from a very different perspective. And um, yeah, I guess this perspective was uh, from someone who was an immigrant, felt like I didn't belong to the mostly white school that I went to. And um, I I think I listened to a lot of rap music. I think that's what happened. I I listened, Tupac was my hero. I remember being like, I love Tupac. Tupac is so cool. Like I read his poems and I I just, I like memorized all his songs and I just felt like, like, yeah, you know, I just felt, I just resonated with the music, the, the, like the rap music. So I think that all kind of made me into like this person who was like, I just kind of walked around like, no, like, if you say yes, I'm going to say no. If you say up, I'm going to say down. Like, I just had this sort of, sort of attitude.
0: What I really admired, too, about that story is, um, in general, in addition to all of what you just said, but, like, your dad's reaction when um, you mentioned the story about, like, the friend's house and the treatment of the maids, I think... That's something that sometimes like when you're when your statement is underlined by a parent, especially when you're younger, when we really seek that approval, even if you we consciously don't realize subconsciously it does give us that support or nudge right to continue. Um, a lot of the times when like you, you've mentioned a lot of themes around like rebellion, sensitivity and that restless energy that you had. And um, I I really connect to that. We're not obviously the same people, and it's never the same for anyone. But those are ways that I always grew up hearing that I was, and I always felt. Um, however, my household was a little less um, more around emotional sensitivity, like not encouraging, like crying is weak. So, like, um, and then even rebellion. What I find interesting about that phrase is it's actually sometimes like just having an opinion that differs, or re- like loudness, or asserting just speaking can seem rebellious in our culture. And, um, you know, there are a lot of amazing things I love about Indian culture, but one thing I don't really um, enjoy and have had to really process is like, am I being rebellious or am I just having an opinion, right? Like how Michelle Obama says, like, I wasn't loud, but um, I had something important to say. So I feel like sometimes the framing too in Indian culture can really reinforce a very negative self-talk. Um, Uh, especially because I wish I was like you where I turned it more into like, let me embrace my difference. I think I spent a lot of time trying to fit into the standard, both Indian and American um, before maybe kind of even like late twenties, like finally being like, wait a second, like, what do I actually want? And what do I, whose standard am I actually trying to like meet?
1: Well, I just want to say you're doing that now, you know?
0: So I'm sure I'm not alone in this and there are other women, especially right now. I feel like there's a lot of um, momentum with our, brown women coming forward and speaking out more and normalizing a lot of things that we've internalized negatively. Um, what would you just, dis- what would you say to other women who feel this way, but might be afraid to claim that um, authenticity and authentic voice?
1: Well, I guess what I would say, and I know this is this quote is from a completely different context, but I think it applies to our daily lives too, but it's a quote by W. E.B. Du Bois, um, I was just Mm -hmm. doing some reading and he said the cost of freedom is far less than the cost of repression. And I think that's really, really spot on, Mm. you know, whether we're talking about revolutionary change, fighting for revolutionary change, or even, even ourselves. I mean, people walk around because of society with all these fears um, about how things, you know how how they need to fit into norms how they need to accomplish certain goals but what we're doing in in that process is we're letting fear repress us and it's so much easier to be yourself it's so much easier to just be free absolutely and you know again i I think i'm giving this advice to myself too because i just realized while i'm speaking that there's a lot of ways in which i think i'm not you know i think i have Mm -hmm. also been been trapped for example by the beauty myth um feeling inadequate in um, my body mm-hmm. size and feeling like I need to be skinnier. I mean, I struggled with that for so long. And I think finally I'm getting to the point where I'm starting to realize I don't think this is worth it. Like, I don't think this uh, living a life where you're trying to, you know, you're, you're viewing yourself through somebody else's eyes is, is a life worth living. You're, you're trying to adhere to, to some beauty standards that weren't set by, by you. And they were set by a society which is trying to capitalize off of them. So I think it's a, it's far easier to just be yourself and be free. And, um, yeah. and, uh, I think it's, it's easier to do that when you're, um, you know, don't feel so repressed too. So anytime you feel like you're re- repressing yourself, it's, it's just easier to just do the opposite and say, no, I'm just not going to, not going to do that.
0: Absolutely. And it's interesting that you touched on that because I actually was going to ask you a question about body image, um, if you ever also get down on yourself, because sometimes we also see uh, upspoken women and it, we can still go down that route of, but they're so outspoken and strong and courageous. I don't know if I have it right. Um, and I even did that to the body piece. Actually, funny enough, I was watching one of your videos and I was like, man, I wish I looked like that in the top like that. Like I have very like, strong goals, so like I'm working out my journey with my body relationship. But um, on that note, I was actually... if if, like, I'm just going to say like, so in Indian culture, Mm -hmm. there's a big value on Mm -hmm. fairness. Um, yeah, there's a big value on, um, green eyes and like exotic eyes. Right. Um, it's very rare. So we put it at a pedestal. I remember in college, I even fell for it and I was like, I'm going to get green contacts and show up like those hot Priyanka Chopra. Yeah. And then this guy had a crush on me and he literally, like when I told him my contacts were green, he was like, um oh, oh that's a bummer like I thought you had green eyes and I remember yeah. feeling like damn like that sucks like maybe that's uh maybe this will not work out wow. um so as someone who does have these features yeah. um and you didn't choose it right you were born this way um how have people's perceptions of you whether it's our Indian community or American community how has that highlighted certain themes of privilege or how people treat women um when they look? pretty in that way. I would love to hear more about what you have experienced in regards to that. And if that strikes a bell.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot to say about this. Um, First of all, I just want to acknowledge that. Yeah. I I think that, you know, having these features puts me closer on the proximity of uh, the spectrum of whiteness. So I think it has helped me in many ways um, because uh, just having green eyes the reason that the reason that people, Pointed out every time they see me and I know that don't mean harm but they're just you know pointing out if they're just bringing up something that is just you know that society has has taught them but it, what they're really saying is like oh I really like your green eyes what they're really saying mm-hmm. is I really like this white feature that you have because you're not supposed to have it you're Indian you're supposed to have uh you know this non-white features so I really like this like white feature that you have it is essentially what they're saying yeah and um and I think, yeah, I mean, I, I felt special a lot. I felt very, uh, you know, I, I, I was told a lot, like, you're really, you're really beautiful. You're really pretty. But at the same time, there was always an underlying tension mm-hmm. because I felt like, I felt like, Oh, okay. So it's, it's, you like that. I'm, you know, you like this feature about me, but I always wonder, like, do you think the rest of me is pretty? <laughs> I, yeah. I I remember thinking that, that too. And, um, until recently when I just started learning a lot about about uh you know all of the racism in, in Bollywood and in and, and Indian culture uh mm-hmm. just started realizing how harmful these uh you know these beauty standards are and um yeah I think for me it's it's it just made me want to be more white <laughs> I think growing yeah. up like I was like okay cool like I have this one feature so I I can I can try to be more more white but honestly I never fit into that regard in in that regard so I I felt very conflicted so part of me felt like, wow, people are complimenting me for my eyes, but they don't really know who I am because, you know, I, I struggled with a lot of other body image issues, having a, lot of, mm-hmm. having a lot of, you know, having a lot of hair. So even when people complimented me like, wow, your hair is so long and thick. I was like, yeah, but I have it like everywhere. And like, do you really? Yeah, do? <laughs> like, you don't want it to be like that down there, boo. <laughs> <laughs> like anywhere. Like I literally, you know, so I, I always felt like um, not seen for who I really am. It was, it was really, it was really weird. Um, but. At the same time, um, I felt like, well, at least I can, you know, at least I have this one thing. So I almost felt like it was a power. But I just want to say that it was, a, you know, I don't think that was a good feeling. Like, I, I, I think I just, yeah. I, I don't think it felt very good. I don't think it, like, felt really nice to me um, to feel like my, my you know, sister feels singled out. Like, every time people tell me, wow, you're so you're so pretty because you have green eyes. Like, she never got told that, you know because why she has brown eyes. And I think for a while I actually wanted brown eyes because I was like, I think they're, you know, brown eyes are really pretty. And I don't, I don't like people feeling left out. And I just felt like kind of weird about that. And, um, and I still do. I don't really like, um, I, I again, like, I, I think it's really nice when people say that stuff, but I'll I just say it back to them. Like you have really pretty eyes too, you know, like everyone, else, I mean, everyone's eyes are beautiful. And I think brown eyes are are, are beautiful. Like a, a, bl- a blue eye like whatever. I mean, it's just, I I don't, I don't like feeling, uh, this, you know, I'm special because I have this one white feature, but I just wanted to go back to acknowledge what you said about, um, first of all, thank you for being, being vulnerable. And I just want to say that I think as women, we do that. I mean, I do that to other women all the time where I'm like, wow, I'm not as skinny as her, or I wish I was, uh, you know, I wish my, I just, just dissecting body parts and being like, I wish, I wish I looked like that. So I just want to, you know, shit, just be courageous like you were and just say I do that too and I think it's it's interesting that a lot of women do this to to each other we're constantly doing this
0: right there's actually an Amy Schumer sketch about this where they're like shut up I love your nose no oh my god my nose is so like gargantuan I love your thighs and like everyone just keeps one upping the other person until they explode um and I thought that was so accurate because it's for some reason even and I really appreciated that you didn't Not that there's a right way to support someone in this situation, um, when you're already like good intention, but like, um instead of saying like, no, but I like you look beautiful and like making it more about validating. Um, I appreciated that you just joined me to sit with, I feel this way too. So thank you for that compassion because I think that's where we get stuck. It doesn't actually solve the problem. If you just push back like, Oh, but like you have a great, like, you know, (laughs) body, right? Like we're, we're just reinforcing that negative behavior. So, um, I, I really appreciate that. And it is, I think a lot of Anyone with dual identities who try to fit into this mainstream mold, often the standards of white beauty, I think can have that feeling of like, ouch, yikes, because there were so many moments in our lives where we try to be that. And we actually would even kind of smile to ourselves, like, thank God I'm passing. Right. Like if someone's saying like, Hap-, like you're very pretty for an Indian girl, um, do you have some European mixed in you or, oh, you don't look like other Indian people? Like, it's really shameful to think now. But back then, like at that point, maybe there's a moment where we might have felt like, oh, yay, um, you know, and it's it's embarrassing to think. But I think that's where I I appreciate that more and more people are normalizing. That's not that's not the case.
1: Yeah, I think I think honestly, it kind of gave me in a really negative way this stuff this um, feeling like i'm really special or something Mm -hmm. but then when i came here i was like wait hold on i'm not anymore (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean and i guess i still was so i guess i i mean i guess in a way i did good i was like all right i'll just be special by like being an activist or something you know what i mean because i just i just felt like channel that differently you know every time people saw me they would that's just what they come they still do and now i just I really don't like it. Honestly, I don't like it because I think, I think like you said, it just perpetuates the beauty myth. I think it just constantly is just, you know, and, and then again, it's just, it just makes me feel like, ugh, all right, I got to keep, uh, keep this thing that I have. I got to protect it. You know, like, yeah, I, if I just... didn't
0: have green eyes. How would you have responded? Right. Like, especially like with our Indian culture that values that like, um, Am I more of like, am I being commodified by like the green eyes? you see anything past me? Right. Um, so that's, it's really difficult.
1: Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to say, just acknowledge how racist Bollywood is. I honestly can't even listen to some of the songs anymore. They blatantly, uh, these songs are blatantly talking about, um, how white skin is better than, than, um, than darker skin. Um, I have talked to my Indian friends who are darker and I have like just tears in my eyes talking, you know, hearing their stories about feeling so degraded yeah. for being, for being dark and um, just this system of white, white beauty standards that we're, that Bollywood is protecting. And if you look at the women that are constantly featured in Bollywood, Aishwarya Rai, uh, yeah. Katrina, Kef, um, so many women, they're not the average Indian woman. India is a huge country with a population of like so many people and most of them do not look like these white passing women they don't and they mm-hmm. don't look like me either so i walk around and with that understanding that i am not you know i i'm actually yeah i'm not like a representation of most i guess maybe you know i i am indian um but i'm just saying like it's not fair uh to this is not what indian women look like and um Bollywood has done horrible things yes. uh, to perpetuate the beauty myth on white beauty standards.
0: I 1000% agree. In fact, one of my best friends and I recorded an episode that we're still kind of working through about Bollywood and our relationship, how it's changed. And so um, w- basically underlining everything you've said. But in addition to that, I think what became really kind of... Um, I'm use the word traumatizing, but like for me was that like as a darker skinned individual too, and always kind of more loud in our community, um, didn't really conform. And um it's one thing in America to not see yourself represented. Uh there is that argument of like, okay, well, like, you know, I'm I'm being increasingly represented. Maybe our population's still new. Um America does have kind of the melting pot, quote quote. Um But in India, if you're not represented by your own, then it's even more painful because in Bollywood, you're like, well, then no one looks like me or the person who looks like me is often the, um, they're always cast in the light of either the sidekick or the person who like, isn't liked for their beauty, but their personality, you know? So, um, those things can also be really vicious. And then- You wonder, then where do I belong? And I almost felt at times that because Indian standards didn't, I didn't meet Indian uh, standards, then America would accept me more. But it doesn't technically, you know? So it was like a really weird gray area to be in and never knowing like what standard do you actually get, where are you appreciated and worthy? You know, forget appreciation. I'm not looking for admiration, right? Just feeling worthy
1: yeah definitely, and that's really painful, and that's honestly why I don't like Bollywood anymore and i I really honestly try not to participate in um same in in most of it i know some some of it can be good like everything else, but it's it's as an industry, it's a very uh I just don't see any good
0: <laughs> no they're not c- confronting a lot of the problems that are also coming up, so that's also what disappoints me is that people are calling yes, them out but they're not taking ownership. Um, and actually in that note of body, um, we even, you and I, when we first talked touched on the topic of body terrorism. Um, and I wanted to break that down a little bit for those of us who might not be as familiar with this space. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it is and why it's a topic that concerns us all?
1: Yeah, I think body terrorism is a concept that I heard about in the book, This body's Not an Apology. It's by Sonia Taylor. It's a really, really amazing book. And basically what it talks about is the many ways in which uh, society terrorizes people for having different bodies, different, different bodies that are able differently, bodies that look different from the standard of being white. The further you get away from it, the more you're terrorized for having different hair, having different features, having different skin color. And literally, people are killed because of it. You know, w- what is body terrorism when you know black men or black women too walking down the street feel hunted, get shot by the police, mm-hmm. be uh, and are disproportionately targeted. It's body terrorism. They're doing th- that's happening to them because they're walking around in bodies that look different than the than the body that is uh, supposed to be the norm. And um, that's why beauty standards are so harmful. It's not just like beauty standards. It's it's a part of a bigger picture it's uh upheld to you know it's upheld to perpetuate to perpetuate white supremacy Mm -hmm. to uphold uh to uphold um you know corporations uh making money off of our body uh, off of manipulating our bodies off of uh you know plastic surgery the diet industry now so it's all done for a very specific purpose yeah and it's very very dangerous and um i think being really really mindful of that uh, it's important. And I'll just give you one example of this. And I have to do more research into this because this is just something I saw on Instagram. So I'll just be, you know, I, I don't think I, I know the, the exact sources. So I learned about, you know, one of the, one of the reasons why body hair is so politicized and why women, you know, why women and why uh, like it, you're not supposed to have body hair. So the reason this was, it even became a thing is because there was a time when um women from, you know, I think, uh, Arabic countries, Middle East, were, Gre- Greece uh, were coming here. They had more body hair. And the the importance of maintaining white women's beauty became very, very important because it became a question of pa- you know, patriotism. And, yeah. and hey, we're trying to protect, we're trying to protect, uh, quote unquote, our people. What are we going to uh, do? Oh, OK, we're going to politicize body hair. So white women are beautiful because they don't have body hair, while these women are not beautiful because they have body hair. When in reality, if you look at it, like body hair is actually supposed to be a sign of like youth, you know. You, yes. If you have just like hair. If you have a lot of hair, like, and you see this, it's accepted with our eyebrows and and like having long hair and stuff. But in certain areas, no. Why? Because white women don't have body hair in those places, so it was used as a way to be anti-immigrant. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these are, these beauty standards aren't just like there's a. there's a really good book, The Beauty Myth, and it talks about how, by Naomi Wolf, and it talks about how the, you know, the beauty industry and status quo, they don't care whether, like, they don't actually care what size you are. Like, they don't care, like, what skin, like, they they don't care about any of these things. They just care that women know that they're in a constant state of surveillance and that they, that they're being watched and they're being judged so that we have an inner mm. voice in our head that's constantly critiquing us so that they can change up the beauty standards and trends whenever they want to, and we will go along with it to uh, so that they can capitalize off of our insecurities. And I yeah. was like, like bell bells started ringing when I heard that. And I was like, oh man, like I am so trapped in this." and I I just started acknowledging like I am very much trapped in the beauty myth. Yeah. and I'm trying really hard to get out of it. But you know, at at least there's a lifelong of brainwashing. Exactly, and I'm trying really hard. Like I, you know, just being honest with other other women and being like, "Hey, I feel really uh, feel like really insecure about you know not being skinny." And then they're like, "Well, I feel this uh, about you. Like I feel, you know, I I feel like um, I don't want to be skinny. I want to be more of a voluptuous." It's kind of interesting that it's like everyone feels this way because it's true the beauty myth doesn't care whether you're a certain size or not they just care that you feel shitty about yourself constantly who no matter who you are totally
0: i talked about this with swesty too on the beauty episode of like it changes constantly too right like there is a consistent control that this propaganda has over us um but it also like change it's like a fickle every 10 years like one 10 decade being skinny is in one decade having curves is in one decade of skinny waist is in it's just always changing so like even just that piece it leaves you powerless um and constantly wanting something else other than you and it makes you wonder like if i just accepted where i sat in my body how freeing would my life be right like to your point earlier about freedom um it's really painful and just sad when you think about how much you sit in your body, hoping that it'll be a future version or a different version. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I honestly like bringing it back kind of full circle. One thing that really sort of changed my life, basically when I talked to you, I know that like it sounds like very nonchalant, but like, actually it made me think differently about it was our conversation about speciesism and the link between animal liberation and human rights. And A lot of the times, too even just our entire conversation, I'm just imagining like a generic, I have no person that I'm targeting in mind, but a generic uncle kind of listening to us talk on this <laughs> podcast. I feel like there's like a, t- a lot of gaslighting that could be happening, right? Like, oh, you're like, how many problems do you have if your biggest problem is that you're pretty and you have green eyes? Oh, how many problems do you have? Like, why not focus about human rights instead of animal rights, right? But that's kind of what I appreciated of our conversation is that it's all intertwined. This is all part of the kind of Mm -hmm. overall system that we have to re-examine and challenge um so why do you think it's so important for us to understand this link between the animal liberation movement and human rights
1: yeah i think i'll just start off by saying that separation is an illusion and even just beyond this uh, specific question that you asked me you know we are a um collective consciousness and we have been programmed and I want to say colonized into thinking that we are not that, but we are. And it's this oneness that really is is central to, I think, animal liberation, because if if you just look at the word animal, we are all biologically animals. And the fact that we've created this separation from other animals is a form of superiority that is, that has been used to justify Unimaginable violence, and what's what's more is that, and I, I think I talked to you about this. The work that Silco um, and Afco, two incredible scholars, um, uh, researchers who have done just amazing work, um, but there's a one-hour-long talk that they did about this, and it's really really powerful, and it basically talks about how the, the human-animal divide subspecies subjectivism and this idea that, um, you know, we think that there's animals and then there's humans, which by the way, is like, we're all animals. So there's already that distinction, which is not true. But what she more specifically talks about is a specific period in history. And now I'm forgetting the year, uh, which, uh, you know, uh, when it happened, but I'll, I'll get back to you on that. But there was a specific point in human history when It was redefined what it means to be a human. And ironically, that time in history was also when uh, um, white Christians, Anglo-Saxon Christians were coming to what we call America now and invading indigenous land. And the way that they did that is by justifying that these people are not human, we are humans. Hence, we have the right to rape, pillage, colonize their land, kill their children, treat them differently. And so what this, what, what, you know, what their talk really pointed out to me is that what it means to be a human means to be the, the, the definition that we are going off when we talk about humans is a definition which is designed to, again, protect white supremacy. And what it means to be a human is what it means to be a white human it's a specific definition. And if you are stray away from that, you're treated as subhuman. And we can see this when we look at, you know, Black men literally being hunted down and not just Black men, Black people for being Black, being hunted down in the streets for not, you know, for um, for being Black. And they're treated as subhuman. We we see this with um, uh, with the way people talk about even Asian people, Chinese mm-hmm. people, like they're, you know, saying things like they're barbaric, they're the, you know vermin of society, um, and, and just treating them as lesser than, treating them as subhuman. And wh- this is really, really interesting to me because um, it just shows that if we ha- if we are to actually take uh, uh, dismantling oppression towards um, non human animals seriously, and also take dismantling racism seriously. We have to pay attention to the human animal divide, and one of the most fascinating things that she said in this talk is that the that the way that we treat animals is informed by racism and mm. if we it's literally the way that we treat animals is informed by how we treat other humans uh, humans who are lesser than and I'm sorry if I lost you, but I'll send you the talk and I hope other people who are listening to this will listen to because it's it's fascinating work. And just an, as is an example, I think it was like in nineteen in nineteen eighties, there was a series of murders in, in Los Angeles where um uh, the police just basically said like we're not gonna investigate these murders why it's with mostly black and brown people being murdered and they filed it under NHI which basically means uh no no humans involved. Just think about that. Wow. They said there's no humans involved, hence we don't have to investigate this further. Why would you how it's just so interesting that, that that is what they would use and say like, there's no humans at all. They're just, these are animals. So, and if you look at our prison system, it's, it's very, and I mean, I've been to jail. People are treated as subhuman. They're not treated as, I mean, literally people are living inside of cages. They have no bodily autonomy. And sometimes they're in solitary confinement. If you look inside of farms and slaughterhouses, um, you know, there's a lot of parallels and similarities. So yeah. there's a whole invisible structure which is whether we want to see uh, these oppressions as related or not, doesn't matter because the foundation that they're built on is related. So if we are to dismantle these systems, we have to come from a perspective of seeing them as, as a foundation that is so intertwined together that if we're going to do anything impactful, we have to see it as a part of each other's struggle. So, you know, when we're going out there to fight for Black Lives Matter, what what are we doing? We're fighting for bodily autonomy of people to be in their bodies and not get hunted down, Uh, you know, to be able to live freely um, and have basic, have their basic needs met um, for and not be terrorized for living in the bodies that they live in. Mm -hmm. When I'm going to protest fighting for animal liberation, I'm fighting for the bodily autonomy of animals to be safe, to be happy, to be free and to not be uh, exploited for being born and, and terrorized for being born in different bodies. So all of these struggles are, you know, are, are, are related and they share the same foundations um, as far as oppression. And we have to fight, unite. It helps us when we unite against the powers, the capitalist forces that are keeping all of you know, humans and non-humans in cages. And the more that we unite and the the less separation that we see, the more we're going to be able to have an impact and dismantle these systems.
0: That's incredibly powerful. And no, in one point you said, did I lose you? And like, I I do not believe it all. In fact, I think this is something that we could just actually spend another hour talking about. Um, <laughs> and I would love to be able to reference some of the recommended readings or documentaries or anything that you have that you think will help us further educate, but I think it really brings in the point that we have kind of the theme that we've sort of been circling around is that it's all connected. Um, It is the tip of the iceberg when we're talking about our fight for racial injustice and therefore justice, because underneath is all of this that we need to fundamentally understand to realize like the higher piece that we're actually fighting against. Um, And so I really appreciate you shedding light on that.
1: Yeah. Um, Thank you for asking me. I appreciate you shedding the light on it too.
0: Stop it. (laughs) Um, So now Priya, I just wanted to uh, time out, I guess, is uh, I know we've been we're going a little over, I'm almost done. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation. So thank you for spending this time with me. Um, I have two last questions and these are more towards like now, like at the very end, the action you're kind of telling people. Um, so uh, like a call to action. So just FYI that these are now like less about discussion oriented and more about like, what advice do you want to part with? with the audience. Yeah, I think, you okay. know, for people who... Oh, are... sorry. Let me ask the question. Oh,
1: sorry.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're like so prepared over a cheaper. <laughs> um, so I'll pause there. All right. Someone is listening to this episode. And um, first of all, you have very good taste. Um, and secondly, if they want to do something about this, change even a behavior or a discussion um, moving forward... What can they do differently? What would you recommend? What kind of advice would you have?
1: I think I just want to first just start by saying, you know, decolonize your mind. Just make that your principle, because everything in our society is just built on, uh, you know, forces uh, protecting really harmful, oppressive systems like white supremacy, capitalism. And I think just being in a state of mind where you're questioning all of it, is really helpful because it cultivates a sense of openness in you. And and you start to see how all of these things are related and how you too are, are, are a part of, you know, are, are being victimized, um, as a result of it. And, um, so I think that's the, the first advice that I, I want to give, but I think what people can do is just take action, um, take collective action and, and help, and, you know, join, join forces uh, of good, see, you know, help the people who are trying to protect. Life on Earth, because there's so many uh, powerful forces, um, institutions, and corporations who are profiting off of destroying life on Earth. And you know whether that's you know joining a Black Lives Matter protest or helping animal liberationists fighting to abolish factory farming, or you know protecting um, the rights of, of of women and fighting for um, you know indigenous people to get their land back what we're doing is we're trying to protect life on earth and whenever you have an opportunity to do that take it because we don't you know if we don't do it we're we're at, we're in a in a really scary situation um as far as the future of this planet and i think this is our time to get active to get you know to to get woke <laughs> to like read more to learn more and question everything and um unite And build a community of people who are also embodying those values and help them um, fight these these institutions and and forces too.
0: Beautiful. And on that note of becoming more active and involved. One of the things you mentioned earlier, too, is when, for example, you were entering the farms, you had said that, you know, just being able to psychologically and emotionally prepare yourself. So with this life of activism, I imagine that for you, self-care is just as important to be able to continue and not burn out or emotionally tire out. What kind of advice do you have for people who do care, who do feel very deeply to become um, participate and get involved? Um, how can we self care in activism?
1: Yeah, you know, I just I'll just be honest. I think I need to really do better about self care. But I don't know if you knew this, but self care is actually a phenomenon um, concept that came out of the Black Panthers. Um, they started talking about self care in the context of protecting themselves from outside forces that are, you know, trying to destroy wow, them. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, I'll send you the article. It's it's really it's really beautiful. So self care the whole concept is a part of, uh, you know, being revolutionary. Self-care is supposed to be a revolutionary act against a system that profits off of us, to, off of destroying us.
0: Hmm. I had no idea. That's so beautiful to know.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I think it's self-care to, um, not to, to go against the norm to, to do what you want, uh, to not repress your feelings, to be more honest, to be more authentic, to, uh not constantly feel like you have to work and uh be a you know be a just constantly be serving this uh these these systems of oppression and take care of yourself and have uh, and have some you know live a life of joy and i think for the black panthers this was like yeah be proud to be be proud to be black be have fun being black is a joy we're constantly being told being black is a curse it's not it's joy so self-care came out of that Uh, you know, that movement. And and so I think to just honor those, those people, I would say, self care is a revolutionary act. And it requires being revolutionary uh, to to, to take care of yourself.
0: Last but not least, I have our chip chip round, which is our rapid fire. Um, So I'm going to ask you a series of fun, light questions um, that you just answer with whatever pops in your head. Are you ready? Yeah. When you first moved to the U.S. at 11, what did you miss the most about India?
1: I think uh, Chai. Oh, yes.
0: The same that your partner brings you. Yes. cute. (laughs) Yeah.
1: What is the most
0: daring dare that you've been told to do in your life? Oh, man.
1: I guess it was a dare going to, yeah, it was a dare going to uh, disrupt Jeff Bezos. (laughs) So I guess I did it. No way. (laughs) Well, I mean, people were like, can you do it? And I mean, that was kind of like a dare, you know, it's like yeah I'll see if I can do it all right I did it so I do have to ask how did he react um he was pretty shocked because he doesn't like to go to interviews um because he's scared of uh, criticism so he was very he honestly looked like he saw like a ghost or something oh my gosh
0: so when people get dares, usually it's like streaking down a hall, but yours is far more impressive. <laughs> um, favorite thing that you celebrate about yourself?
1: I think being very, <sighs> let's see, favorite thing that I like to celebrate. I think I, I feel very, I feel like I'm a very um, unpredictable person sometimes. And I know that's seen as a really bad thing sometimes, but I kind of don't know who I am. I don't have a very strong sense of self because I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm a collection of everybody else that um, is around me. So I think I like to celebrate that because I don't really, you know, I I am everybody who's around me. Yeah.
0: Um, Who's the person who changed your life?
1: Oh, wow. Um, I mean, there's so many people that change my life all the time. But I really, I really do feel like my partner Um, has done a lot to change my life. I feel like I've been a more revolutionary person ever since I met them. And I feel very privileged to be, uh, you know, but to, to have, to be in a, in a partnership where I feel like I'm learning a lot and growing a lot.
0: Definitely. that brings us to the end. So thank you so, so much for spending this much time with me. I feel like this was not only just so helpful for me, but I can't wait for others to listen to this. I'm so excited.
1: (laughs) I'm so excited to um, be connected to you. And I'm so glad that you're doing this because you're very, very uh, good at just uh, interviewing people and just making people feel very special. Like I love talking about myself because of just the questions that you asked and yeah you're just very charismatic and also caring and very very thoughtful oh thank
0: you so much
1: thank you